Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. We've been working through the book of Hebrews for a number of weeks now. We come this week to Hebrews 6, verse 4. Um, and uh, before we read that together, let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we do pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit, that you would speak to us of the gospel of your Son, that you would enable us to rest in your mercy, uh, help us to find all that we need in your Son, uh, help us to find salvation in him and hope in him and peace in him and reconciliation in him, Help us to find in him our righteousness and our holiness. Father, work those things in us through your word, by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our text is Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation." For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, there are hardly two topics that seem less fit to go together and more likely to stir up controversy than apostasy and assurance. Now, if you have no clue what these even are, apostasy is the act of turning away from the faith. And assurance is the idea that we can know for certain that we are saved from our sin in this life and the next. The two ideas seem to contradict one another. If apostasy is possible, how can I ever know for sure that I am saved or will be saved from the final judgment? On the other hand, if I do have genuine assurance, doesn't that mean that apostasy is no longer a possibility? And not only do these two things seem contradictory, they are also certainly not popular today. Uh, in a culture where individual choice is king, apostasy seems irrelevant. I mean, everyone should be able to come and go as they please. And in a therapeutic culture where everyone is fine, 
The assurance of God's love should be ubiquitous and free-flowing. If I lack it, it's only because I can't accept that I am loved. Well, our text this morning in Hebrews 6 is often at the center of discussions or even debates on apostasy, but it also has something to say about assurance. And I hope this morning to show that actually both are a reality, as the text will say, but even more, I want to lead you and me and us to find our assurance in the only place that it may be found, which is in Jesus. And so our outline for this morning, which you can see in your bulletin, is just three points. Celebrate real blessings, beware real apostasy, and find real assurance. Celebrate real blessings, beware real apostasy, and find real assurance. First, celebrate real blessings. You know, sometimes when we think of God's blessings, we have a very short list. Uh, often it's only two things. We think of God's provision, things that God does for us in this life, and we think of God's salvation, right? The, the forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. Now, there are a number of things that, that might be wrong with this list, but mostly that it's just too short. Uh, it leaves out all kinds of blessings from our Father, uh, most of all, uh, the blessings that are described in verses 4 and 5 of our text this morning. There's really a whole category of blessings here which are experienced in the church that are good blessings from God, but ultimately fall short of salvation. Now, given the context in the book of Hebrews, when we come to this list, we should continue to think of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Uh, you may remember we've seen Israel pop up a few times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we saw Israel first back in chapter 3 where the writer quotes uh, a psalm about Israel in the wilderness. And then in Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 to 15, he applies that experience to us and he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion." Now, there, there is really an, an implicit warning here in our text this morning, as it was there, to not be like Israel. Israel tasted God's blessings in the wilderness, but because of the hardness of their hearts, they did not profit from those blessings. And so what blessings might we partake of and not profit from? Well, look at verse 4. Uh, the first one listed there in verse 4 is being enlightened. You know, all of Israel had heard God's word at Mount Sinai. Uh, they literally saw lightning and fire on the mountain. They had seen God's light even when all of Egypt was in the dark. Maybe you have heard of God's grace through the church. Maybe uh, the Spirit has given you some understanding of spiritual things. Maybe you've even marveled at God's love in the cross. You've been enlightened 
to these heavenly realities. The second blessing is tasting of the heavenly gift. Again, all Israel ate manna in the wilderness, the, the bread of heaven. We too have been given the living bread, Jesus, and we, we partake of the sacrament, uh, the Lord's Supper, when able, week after week, or at least month after month. And this, this sacrament is a real blessing. And yet some of those who partake of it do so without faith. And so you have being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, and third, the third blessing mentioned is sharing in the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, this is uh, troublesome for some who don't realize that there is both a, a saving and a non-saving work of the Spirit. See, we get confused because we forget that there, there is this real but not saving work of the Spirit in people's lives. Jesus uh, alludes to this, at least in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, on that day, that, uh, that is on the day that Jesus returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the, the Spirit might be at work in you, uh, enlightening your mind, to understand the basic spiritual things, giving you some taste of them. The Spirit might be at work through you, even performing signs and wonders, or, or we might say today, right, giving you spiritual gifts for the upbuilding of the church. But those are not necessarily signs of the Spirit's saving work. They are signs of the Spirit's work and to be celebrated, but they're not necessarily signs of the Spirit's saving work. The, the fourth blessing mentioned then is uh, tasting the goodness of the Word of God. Uh, we, we read this scripture, we see its truth, we recognize its wisdom. James warns us though, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, James says, and shudder. You see, recognizing the truth of God's Word is good, important, but not sufficient. The final blessing that is mentioned then is the blessing of tasting the powers of the age to come. And really all of this, all of these blessings are a foretaste of the coming age. The gospel, the supper, the spirit's work, the word of God, they all partake of the coming age. All who taste of them have a foretaste, something to whet the appetite for greater and fuller and better and more glorious things to come. Now, if it's helpful for you, we, we might categorize God's blessings uh, as, as common, special, and saving. You know, some of God's blessings are common to all people. Uh, Jesus says, the Father sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And yet some of God's blessings are unique to his people, right? All Israel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, as we heard read earlier with most of them, Paul goes on, God was not pleased. And it's the same way in the church. There are many blessings, hearing the gospel, partaking of the sacraments, even certain common works of the spirit that are unique to the church and yet not saving in themselves. 
And finally, right, there's, there's common blessings that all people enjoy. There are special blessings that we experience in the church. And then finally, there are God's saving works in our lives, like regeneration and justification and sanctification, right? Those are some of the blessings which accompany saving faith in Christ. But if these things here in verses 4 and 5 are real, but not saving blessings, what do we do with them? Well, what we do with them is we celebrate them, but we don't rest in them. We give thanks to God for these things, and yet we still ask God for more. Do you have some knowledge of the gospel? Do you participate in the life of the church? Do you partake of the sacrament when possible? Have you experienced some work of the Spirit? Have you tasted the goodness of God's Word? And so in all of that, experience the powers of the age to come. Good. Celebrate that, but don't rest in it. Well, this idea of real but not saving blessings brings us to the next point. Celebrate real blessings but beware real apostasy. Now, in verses 4 and 6, we are told that it is impossible, once someone has experienced these blessings and then falls away, to restore them again. Now, this is one of those verses that strikes fear into the hearts of all people who are attentive to what it is saying, Uh, but we shouldn't misunderstand it so easy to misunderstand it. We shouldn't misunderstand it. Uh, The first thing that we need to say is, um, you know, some people might think, does this mean that there is no possibility of restoration after sin? That if I have become a Christian, if I've repented of sin and turned to Jesus and trusted in his saving blood, and then I've fallen into sin, even maybe a great sin, a big sin, does this mean that there's no possibility of restoration after sin? Well, clearly the answer to that question is no, right? Even great sin can be forgiven. That's what grace is all about. And of course, we see that in Scripture. We see it in David, right? David, who was the king in Israel whom God had raised up, and yet he went on to commit adultery and murder and lies and cover-ups. And in 2 Samuel 11, 27, we're told the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But then in chapter 12, David was confronted over his sin. He confessed his sin and he was restored to his Father in heaven. We see this with the Apostle Peter, right? Who twice, twice turns away from Jesus. He denies Jesus three times at his trial. Then Jesus restores him after the resurrection. And then in Galatians, Paul records that Peter gave in to opposition to the gospel. But after Paul's rebuke, it seems that Peter continues in ministry, having been restored, knowing that God is able to forgive even great sin and restore us to himself. God's grace is big enough to cover our sin. Whatever sin you may have committed, do not despair that the sin is too big or God's grace is too small. It is not so. God's grace is big enough to cover every sin and any sin you might commit. If like David and Peter, you will turn to him in repentance and faith. So Hebrews is talking about the impossibility of restoration, not after sin, but after apostasy. Now remember, apostasy is turning away from the faith. 
And yet there are still some important questions we need to ask about this. What, is, what does this mean? Uh, let me start with two questions. One is impossible in what sense? In what sense? There, there are actually three possibilities for this word impossible. Uh, it could mean an exaggerated or hyperbolic impossibility. So, you know, uh, someone shares with you a story about something that happened and you say, wow, that's impossible. When actually what you mean is that's, that's amazing, that's incredible, that seems impossible, even though it's clearly not because the person just told you it happened. We see something like this in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it is so hard, it is like something that is impossible. A camel to go through the eye of a needle, not possible. And Jesus says it's like that for rich people to enter the kingdom. And yet, sometimes rich people do enter the kingdom. And so the impossibility is not absolute, right? It's, it's hyperbolic, it's exaggerated, it's extreme, but it's not absolute. And second, there are circumstantial impossibilities. Uh, that is, something is impossible due to the present circumstances, not impossible in and of itself, but because the circumstances make it impossible in some way. And so we read about this in Mark chapter 6, uh, an example of this. Jesus is in his hometown, and we're told he could do no mighty work there. Jesus could not, it says. Well, how is that the case, that Jesus could not? Well, obviously Jesus can do anything he pleases, right? So this is not an absolute uh, impossibility, but circumstantially, there was something that made it not possible. And so you have, circum you have uh, hyperbolic, right, exaggerated impossibilities, you have circumstantial impossibilities, and then, of course, you have pure impossibilities. Uh, like Hebrews 6.18, which says, uh, it is impossible for God to lie, period. Not circumstantially, not, not hyperbolically, it is impossible for God to lie. Or 2 Timothy 2.13, God cannot deny himself, cannot deny himself. And so when we say... Uh, it is impossible to restore such a one. We, we need to ask ourselves the question, in what sense? Impossible hyperbolically, impossible circumstantially, or just purely an impossibility? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that question hang for a minute and then move to the second question, which is impossible for who? Right? Impossible to restore such a one again. But what is that? Who, who's doing the restoring? It's actually not clear, it's not stated in the text. So is it impossible for the apostate, the, that is the one who has apostatized, is it impossible for him to turn again to God? Well, you might ask the question, was it possible for him to turn in the first place in his own power? Well, Jesus says in John 6, no one can. That is it, is, it is not possible for anyone to come, Jesus says to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. It is not possible. And so we, we were not able to turn to the Father in the first place. And so when it says it is, it is now impossible, it, it can't mean for the person because it was never possible for them in their strength in the first place. Some people suggest that it's impossible for the minister or the preacher to turn this person to God. 
Again, you have the same question, though. Was it possible for him to turn this person in the first place? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says, What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so it's, it's not about my ability at all, ever, praise God, but God who gives the growth. And so maybe you might say, okay, if it's not uh, talking about impossible for the apostate or impossible for the minister, maybe it's impossible for God to turn this person. Well, of course, by no means, right? By no means, right? Mark 10, 26 to 27, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so uh, no one can be saved apart from God at work in them, and all things are possible with God. That's Jesus' point, referring specifically to who can be saved in Mark 10, 26 to 27. So then we have a fourth possibility for this word impossible. Maybe it is impossible, maybe the text is saying it is impossible for the word, the word of God, to reach such a one. And actually, I think that this is the best possibility for the text here. Remember the context of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But the original hearers of the letter had become dull of hearing, chapter 5, verse 11, because they had not received the word rightly. And here is the point. If you, if you have hardened your heart to the word in the past, that same word will do you no good in the present. And so uh, Mark uh, chapter 4, Jesus says in Mark 4, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, the way you hear determines whether you will receive more or lose even what you have. And why is that? It's because the word does two things, not one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, we read, Paul says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You see, the word has two functions. If you refuse its softening function, it will harden you further. And the point here then is this, the more one hardens their heart to the word, the more difficult it becomes for that word to do its saving work. Now, can God soften your heart? Well, well of course he can, but will God soften your heart? You do not have that promise if you harden your heart. If you decide to harden your heart, there, there are no promises that later on down the road, God will soften it. You know, some people comfort themselves in that way. They say, I'm going to reject God's word now, but later on I will repent. I know it's true, and so sometime down the road I'm going to repent. But if you harden your heart now, you do not have the promise that God will soften it later on. 
And so this impossibility, on the one hand, it's not, it's not a strict impossibility. It is, in some sense, hyperbolic, right? How difficult it is for one who hardens their heart to the Word to then receive it later on. And yet, the more you harden your heart to God's Word, the more purely impossible it becomes for God's Word to do its work in us. If I harden my heart, if I persistently refuse to listen to the Word of God, I harden my heart, and then it becomes harder and harder for that Word to do its work. It's not possible for God, but impossible in that we hinder the work of the Word in our hearts as we harden ourselves to it. And some people had done just that. Uh, some people had hardened themselves. Uh, the writer talks about people who were crucifying again and holding Christ to contempt. Now, that, that is, they, they had rejected Christ's saving work. They had become, become like those who mock, right? They despise the cross. They despise the crucified one. If you reject Christ, if you mock Christ, if you, if you laugh at his crucifixion, how could that good news of his crucifixion ever do its work in your life? You've rejected it. You've disdained it. You mock it. And now it will do you no good. Now again, we may celebrate real blessings, both, both of church life and of the Spirit, but we must not rest until we receive the saving grace of God found in the cross. But if we harden ourselves to God's Word, we have no hope of that Word drawing us near. Now this understanding of the text is actually confirmed in the following two verses, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 say this, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, it is, it is, it is not unusual for God's people to be compared to ground or soil that bears fruit, that has a harvest. Uh, Jesus says the soil is our hearts. And here, instead of the word as seed, like in the parable of Jesus, the word is, is rain. Isaiah 55 compares the word to rain, which waters the earth. There in Isaiah, it's, it's about the promises of God, which are sure. But here, the writer is saying, if, if the word rain, right? If, if, the, if the word of God, which like rain, falls on us, and, and bears fruit on the one plot of land, but no fruit on the other, it's not the rain's fault. The problem is with the soil and what is in it. And the point is, if one receives the word again and again like the rain, but bears no fruit, but hardens their hearts, it, it says something not about the rain, but about their hearts. This text is about someone who had, uh, not about someone, right, who had undergone the new birth and then fell away, but someone who was a member of the church, received certain blessings of the Spirit, professed the faith, knew the right things to say, but then later abandoned the faith because their hearts remained unchanged. At bottom, their hearts were, in the terms of Jesus' parable, right, the hard or the shallow or the weed-infested soil. And this is what real apostasy is, right? Not, not that the regenerate person becomes unregenerate, not that uh, the spirit begins the work of the new birth and then, and then backs off, but that those who profess faith as members of the church, who, 
who then turn and reject the faith that they once professed. See, having received the grace of God in some sense, having been a part of the church, having heard the gospel, they did not bear the fruit of that grace. That is, the word fell on deaf ears. The grace was unproductive. And the judgment here is that the soil was bad. The land is worthless. And as Jesus said in multiple parables, is ready to be cut down, dug up, or burned. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the question for each one of us is, how are you responding to God's word? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't, don't think, oh, this message is not for me. I, I've, I've always been in the church. I grew up in the church. I was baptized as a child or I was baptized at summer camp or I, I late lead Sunday school or I'm well-loved in my Christian community. None of that matters. Right? Those are all good things, but they do not determine whether you are, are saved by the blood of Jesus or not. And so then what does matter? How, how do you know, right? How do you know that you're not... Uh, in the church, but still hard, shallow, weedy soil, or whether you have undergone the new birth, or whether your hearts have been tilled by the Spirit, as it were, to receive the Word and bear fruit. Well, that brings us to the final point. Celebrate real blessings, beware real apostasy, and three, find real assurance. Verse 9 says this, Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In your case, things are different, the writer says. Now, this is interesting. He, he has just warned them against the possibility, the reality of apostasy. But then he says, but that's not your case. Why is that? Because he sees in, the, in the, the people to whom he's writing, he sees signs of genuine faith, saving faith. What are those signs? Well, we could summarize them as, as three things under three headings, fruit, perseverance, and gospel faith. Uh, first, he mentions fruit, fruit that indicates the work of God in their hearts. Uh, that, that's one of the points of the little parable in verses 7 and 8, right? As Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, Jesus says, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And so a sign that the heart has been tilled by the Spirit and the tree that has grown is good is the fruit that it bears. Now, of course, I, I just said that, that being in the church in and of itself does not save you, and that's true. And yet being part of a, a local church is one of those fruits of the gospel's work in our lives. But that fruit is further described here in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, the, 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 their work and the love that they have for God's name and, and, and as that is seen in their serving the saints, these are the fruits of the Spirit's work in their lives. Do you seek to serve God's people using your giftedness for the good of the church? Uh, when you love God, you will love his people. As flawed and messed up as we are, and we are, 
When you love God, you will love his people. And so when you love God's people, that is a sign that you love God's name. And God, the writer says, will not overlook such love. What does that mean? That means God does care about what we do. He, he remembers our work done for him. Now that doesn't mean that our standing with God changes based on our works. If you are in Christ through faith, you have the Father's love and grace, and there, there is nothing you can do to increase that love, and there is nothing you can do to diminish it if you are in Christ. But that does not mean the Father does not care about your behavior. Think about how silly that would be. You know, if a spouse commits to you no matter what, and you, and you know she means it, she's committed to you 100%, does that mean that she doesn't care about your behavior? Not at all. In fact, because she is committed to you, she cares. Because she cares about you, she cares what you do. Hebrews says God not only cares, but he remembers our work done for him. He will not overlook it, though, though it be weak and tainted with much sin, and it is. God will not overlook our work for him. In fact, he celebrates it. We see that in some of Jesus' parables where one day we will hear the Father say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that's despite all of our flaws, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, the Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the desire of our hearts, is it not? And that fruit is a sign of the saving work of God. Now, for some, it's really hard to see the fruit of faith in their lives. And I mean for, the, for themselves, right? To see the uh, work, the fruit of faith in your own life sometimes can be really hard. And one Puritan, Thomas Hooker, gave this advice. He said, take your soul at its best. Do not always pour over the worst that is there, nor dwell on your failings or that which can only accuse you. But if there is anything there that might speak for you, don't overlook it. It is an injustice, he says, for any court to hear one side and not the other. And he goes on to say, if you can think of nothing good, but are simply tormented by how little fruit there is in your life, then that, even that in itself is a fruit of God's grace. Look not simply to the fact of your sin, he says, but to the fact that you are weary of them and hate them, because that, even that, is a sign of God's grace at work in you. But this is only the first sign. Uh, the sign number one is, is fruit, the fruit of grace at work in your life. The second sign is perseverance, which I guess really is a special kind of fruit, is one particular fruit of God's grace at work in your life, perseverance. You see this in verse 11 where it talks about earnestness. In verse 12 where it talks about those who inherit promises do so through faith and patience. There's this persevering faith that is patient, that is waiting, that is looking, that is longing for God to bring the fullness of his promises. And perseverance is, is the concern of Hebrews, right? They, they, they must have been undergoing some kind of persecution, though not yet to the point of shedding blood, we'll read later, but they were undergoing persecution nonetheless. And he wants them to hold fast lest they drift, drift away, chapter 2, verse 1. He calls them to strive to enter God's rest, chapter 4, 11. And hold on to your confidence firm to the end, chapter 3, verse 14. And go on to maturity by the power of God, chapter 6, verse 1. See, there are so many great and precious promises in Scripture to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres to the end. The writer is saying, you've made it this far. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't sit back and rest on where you've come, but keep going. Keep persevering. 
faithfulness and perseverance are signs, signs of a genuine work of grace in the heart. And yet there's one more that's really the most important, and it's, it's more important than either of those. It's the one that even when we struggle to see the others, you cling to this one, which is rest in the gospel. In, in verse 11, he wants them, he says, to have the full assurance of hope. Again, the whole letter is meant to give them this hope as the writer points them to Jesus, who is our hope. And this is what bears the fruit. This is what enables perseverance. The way forward is not try harder, do more, buckle down, bear fruit, and certainly don't back down. No, the way forward is consider Jesus. And since we have such a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. See, in him, our great high priest, we have hope. He has entered the heavenly most holy place, and we too will enter in him. Rest in his completed work. You know, as I've said before, as we've been looking at Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews does not want us to live in uncertainty, but he does want our certainty to be properly placed. Don't trust that you have been a part of the church for so long and have come so far, but rest in Jesus who alone can bring you through to the end. Drink in the rain that falls on you, the word of God and the gospel, and it will produce a crop useful to God. Seek to cultivate God's gifts of grace, and they will bear fruit in your life. But be careful, right? If you struggle, if you struggle to obey, if you struggle to bear fruit, if you struggle to practice discipline in the Christian life, but you're, you're striving, but you, you, all you can see is failure in your life. Our temptation is to think, okay, Luke, just buckle down, right? Just try harder, just work more, as if by exerting more effort, we could independently produce greater fruit. But as we saw last week, the way we grow up is by growing down. We do not move on from the gospel unto maturity by looking now to our efforts. No, but we move deeper into the gospel unto maturity. Assurance does not come from, from works apart from the gospel but as the fruit of the gospel in your life. Even our faith can be a discouragement if we look at it the wrong way. And Paul Miller says, looking at your faith will depress you, whereas exercising faith by looking to Jesus frees you. Rest in the gospel. Do you struggle with assurance? Go deeper into the gospel. Look to Jesus, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens he is able to save. Find the full assurance of hope in Christ. And fruit will follow as that gospel takes hold of your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who calls you is able, and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that the one who died for our sins rose again from the dead, ascended to your right hand, and is now seated in heaven, interceding for us, praying for us. We know that he is then able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to you, our Father, through him. And Father, we pray that you would help us to set our eyes on Jesus, to rest in his grace more and more, to find joy in that, to celebrate all of your work in our lives, but most of all, to celebrate the work of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.